Our sermon text for today comes out of 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18. If you're following along in the ESV, it's on page 966. So we do not lose heart, though our, our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray together. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the whole Earth is filled with your glory. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and it trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his glory and all the peoples see his glory. You have exalted above all things your name, Lord God, and your word. And if there was ever a moment that I ever felt more inadequate, it is now. But Father, you have words to speak to us through your word. And I pray that that's what would come through here is your word. I pray, Father, that this message would have its intended effect and that it would produce the kind of Christianity at Glory of Christ Baptist Church that would honor you and please you. And I pray, Father, that this message would also bear fruit throughout the world. I think about the situation in Kenya and the afflictions that the Kenyan believers are facing right now. Your word, Christ crucified, has benefit for them. It has something for them. And I pray, Father, that your word would be like heavenly balm now on weary and broken and cracked souls, Father. So come and meet your people here. Bridge heaven and earth together through your word and let us hear from you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian believers in his first letter, and he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, this is kind of a controversial-sounding thing to say, especially from a guy who's written 16 chapters to them in that letter, plus another 13 in the second letter, and arguably all 13 of his books, and all of the extensively deep theology that's in them, and even Peter affirmed in Second Peter 3.16 that there are some things in them, this is referring of Paul's letters, that are hard to understand. So when Paul says that this, this if Paul says something like this, it makes me wonder, really, Paul, is that all you know is Jesus Christ and him crucified? And I think if Paul was here, he would say yes, because Christ crucified is the essence of all of his theology. The cross is the central unifying point of all of his wisdom. 
And every single benefit that we derive now from being new covenant people in Christ were purchased and made effective on the cross. The cross, Jesus Christ and him crucified, is the heart of the gospel. It's the underpinnings of the gospel from which we benefit from. And the gospel is not without a million implications. The gospel has millions of implications. Christ is not crucified without impacting believers and unbelievers alike, infinitely. It's kind of like the sun. To give you a word picture here, I'm, I'm, I'm a visual thinker. Picture the sun. It doesn't exist in the universe without massively impacting its surroundings, all the way to Earth, 93 million miles away. It has gravitational pull. It sends out rays with light and heat and, and vitamins and so on and so forth. And, and to kind of help you with the picture here, picture helping a child out, say a five-year-old or a kindergartner, with a project. You're going to do a craft project and you want to make a sun, right? So you grab your blue piece of construction paper and then you grab a yellow piece of construction paper and you cut out the sun, it's a, the ball, and you paste it right on the, on, the, uh, on the blue piece of construction paper and that's kind of representative of the gospel, right? So you take out your pen, you write gospel of Jesus Christ on there. Now the sun, and that won't do for a five-year-old, right? You have to add sunbeams to it. And that kind of symbolizes the implications going out from the source of the gospel, the sun, impacting its surroundings. So you take your scissors again and you cut out many long, narrow little triangles and you paste them all around the sun, implying that there's implications coming out from the sun. Just like the gospel, there are implications that come out from the gospel, from Jesus Christ crucified, that we benefit from. So I want you to take out your pen again and write on one of those beams. We're only going to look at one beam today. One of the glorious implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And write on there, we do not lose heart. And that's the theme of this message. And that brings us to our text in 2 Corinthians 4. Paul says, "We so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And I just want to make two brief points here before I move on. Number one, so, at the beginning of verse 16, essentially means therefore. It could be translated therefore. And as Pastor Charlie has trained us so well, when we come across the word therefore, we ask, what's the therefore, therefore? And it always points us backwards. And here I'm preaching from verse 17 and 18, which comes afterwards, and that, at least in my preparation, posed some kind of a problem. How can I justify going back or forward? I'm sorry. But if you go all the way back, you get all the way to verse 1. And we read, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. It's the same exact statement. And when a writer duplicates the same exact statement, he's trying to signal this is important. So I think we do not lose heart is a theme throughout the whole chapter 4. And 17 and 18 is merely a summary of that theme. And that's how I justify preaching on the latter verses rather than going backwards. The second point I want to make out is um, affliction. We're going to be talking about affliction, that which causes us to lose heart. And I'm going to, even though Paul talks about affliction in terms of ministry setbacks, as, as ministers of the new covenant, I'm, I'm going to broaden that out and apply that to all afflictions that 
believers in Jesus Christ might experience. So all manifestations of the fall would, I think, fall into this category of affliction that Paul is talking about here. Affliction uh, in our progress as New Covenant Christians. We all are Christians bought by the precious blood of Christ, and we are striving towards holiness. We're persevering until the end. And there is affliction that comes our way that causes us to set back and lose heart. So that's what I'm thinking about here. So we do not lose heart. Now this is Paul talking. This is significant for him to say this. If there was anyone who had reason to lose heart, was it not Paul? These are some of the things that he says in this book alone. Chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. And in chapter 4, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And in a famous passage in chapter 12, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me or to torment me, to keep me from becoming conceited. And then perhaps the longest description of all of Paul's sufferings in the New Testament is uh, in the same book, 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 28, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, Danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is on me daily the pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul has much reason to lose heart, and he says we don't lose heart. In fact, it was him that said in 1 Corinthians 9, who likened the Christian walk to a race. And he said, in that race, there's one winner. And run in such a way as to win the prize. And I think I draw a link here because when you're running, isn't it, you get tired, you're going uphill, the wind's against you, you want to lose heart, you want to tap out of the race and say, forget this, I'm, I'm done. And I think affliction is to the believer like running uphill and against the wind That's how affliction feels in the race that is set before us. So how can Paul say this? That's the big question. I mean, perhaps there's some in here right now that are so worn down that we don't even know how we're going to get out of bed in the morning, let alone putting on our spiritual headband so as to run in a way that we are going to win the prize. How can Paul say that we don't lose heart? And that brings us to verses 17 and 18. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory 
beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, and the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, in my preparation here, one of the first things I did was copy this passage out of the ESV online, pasted it onto a Word document, and I saw this interesting connection between light, momentary, affliction, those three words, and how they contrast and line up so nicely with eternal weight of glory. Eternal weight of glory, right? So you have affliction, and that contrasts perfectly with glory. Now, affliction now results in glory. And uh, light, light affliction now contrasts with weight. We have a weight of glory. And momentary contrasts perfectly with eternal. So it's an eternal weight of glory. And uh, then I ran into a little snag. I went home. And I read a, uh, one of my Bibles. I was perusing through this text. And it was an older ESV translation. And it said, this slight a momentary affliction. And perhaps some of you are reading slight in your Bibles. If you're reading an ESV, perhaps an older version. And I did a double take on that. Slight. It says slight there. And I thought immediately, that throws my analogy off. <laughs> I mean, it's essentially the same meaning. And then secondly, I was a little bit more concerned, am I losing it? I mean, I was sure it said light in there. And uh, how can I preach to these people if I can't even read? So anyway, I, I, I go back and I recognize, after all, it does say light in there. If you're reading a pew Bible, and all that, just to point out that there was a, a translation upgrade or something like that, and uh, they changed that word from slight to light. So I wasn't actually wrong after all. So it, it says both. You can check that out. You only catch those things, I think, if you, if you preach on a text and you read it 100,000 times. So what I want to focus on, though, is the word preparing. Preparing. What is affliction actually doing for us? It is not what it seems for Christians. And uh, to, to, to kind of broaden that understanding of what preparing is getting at here, I looked at a couple of other translations. The NASB says that it's producing for us. The NIV says achieving for us. The NKJV says that affliction is working for us. What is it working to do? And it's working to produce an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's what it's working for, like a boss who hires workers to accomplish things on his behalf. For his cause, he hires somebody and says, work for me. This is what affliction is doing. It's not working against you. It's working for you. So this is glorious gospel news here. And I want to go to Romans 8, 35-37, where I came across something that Paul says that I think is very similar to what he's saying in 2 Corinthians 4 here. I think it's very similar, and I just want to add momentum to what I'm getting at with this illustration. The famous question that Paul asks, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Now, I want to pause here and figure out exactly what Paul is saying here. He's saying, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Or, to say it another way, who shall separate us from 
Christ's loving expression to us. Who shall separate us from that? God is the source of love. We are the recipients. Love is flowing from him through Christ to us. And we receive that love. And we say, all right, we like this. Keep it coming. Then something happens. Not before too long after you become a Christian. Tribulation hits. Distress. Persecution. Famine, nakedness, distress, sword. The apostle, the sword meant death for the apostle Paul, and that happens. And it begs the question, is this a separation of Christ's love towards us? Distress doesn't feel like it could be loving. Is it out of sync with his love towards us? That's the question that he's asking, that he's answering here. To which in verse 37 he says, no. No, distress is not, and affliction is not out of sync with Christ's love towards us. It is not a separation of his loving expression towards us. Or to say it positively, yes, tribulation is, and the sword and death are God's loving expression towards us. This is what Paul is saying. So then the question becomes, how? How is this loving expression towards us? And his answer is, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Wow. What does that mean? That, if you don't understand what more than conquerors means, means nothing, I suppose. I mean, it sounds impressive, doesn't it? Being more than a conqueror of something, but what does it actually mean? And I came up with a little illustration here to help us think through this. There there are kids in the room here. Some of you may play basketball or soccer or something like that. You have a game, and your dad takes you to your game. So you get your uniform on, you're all decked out, get to the court, warming up, you start the game, you play, and it's just, you obliterate them. You go home, and your mom asks you, how did the game go? And you say, should have been there, Mom, 72 to nothing. They couldn't do anything against us. They couldn't even complete one pass successfully. In fact, it was so bad, they came up to us, and their coach came up to our coach and said, we have a game with you guys next month. We're we're just going to forfeit it right now. In fact, I'm not going to be a coach anymore, and none of my players are ever going to even touch a basketball again, ever, because it was so bad. And your mom would say... Wow, you conquered them. You conquered them. But that's not what the text says. The text says that we are more than conquerors. And in that illustration, you would go home to your mom and you would say it was 72... No, I'm sorry. I got ahead of myself. You would, she would say, how did the game go? And you would say, you know, we got on the court, we were practicing, we were warming up. The other team got bust in, they showed up took one good look at us, one good look at the coach, left, came back an hour later after going to the nearest sporting good apparel retail shop with replica jerseys with our name on the front, and they said, we want to be on your team. We want to go your direction. We want to fight your cause. And you know what your mom would say? She would say, you were more than conquerors today. Your adversaries that were going up against you were working for you. 
And I think that's what it means to be more than a conqueror in Jesus Christ. That your enemies don't actually go against you, but they get you don't defeat your enemies merely. You go a step further, and they get up and serve your cause. And that's how I think Paul answers how this can be loving expression for us. That tribulation can be love for us because it serves us. And how does it serve us? It prepares an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, you are New Covenant members, and you are in Christ, and you are more than conquerors. This is glorious gospel reality that we can benefit from affliction, and our adversaries are actually not working against us, but for us. And the harder the trial might be, the longer it might last, the weightier the glory will be. I don't think that all people have equal levels of suffering in this world. And I don't think that there will be equal measures of glory in heaven either. I think it will be kind of spread out. So the suffering that you experience now is working in tandem with a glory that is going to be revealed when Jesus Christ comes back. Every affliction is a deposit into the bank of heaven where it is earning 1,000% interest. And when Jesus Christ returns to gather his elect from the four corners of the earth, we will benefit from its glorious payoff for all eternity. So we are in him more than conquerors of all these things, and thus they are expressions of his love, his infinite and perfect love. So you may be saying to me right now, that all sounds really good. I mean, I'm tracking with you up here. But the reality is, I don't feel like any of my afflictions or distresses are actually coming up to me or any of my adversaries saying, can I wear your jersey? Can I put the name that's on the front of your jersey on the front of my jersey and work for that cause? You may not feel like that. And I would say, fair enough to that. And on the one hand, my analogy kind of breaks down there, doesn't it? But on the other hand, perhaps it doesn't. Because what is that analogy trying to get us to see? And I would argue that that analogy helps us to see the unseen realm. The Apostle Paul says that this slight momentary affliction, light momentary affliction, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look, as we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, which means to the naked eye, when we come up against distress and adversaries come our way, when you look at it in the seen realm, it looks like or it looks like opposition. It looks like you're running uphill against the wind, and that causes us to lose heart. But in the unseen realm, that's not what's going on here if you're a Christian, if you are bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So this means that in the seen realm, our affliction looks and feels only like opposition. But in the seen realm, it is putting on our jersey and fighting on our side. In the unseen realm. This is why Paul writes these things. Because without them, 
they would only seem like opposition and they would cause us to lose heart. It isn't obvious to us altogether right off the bat. Every single time we come into adversity, affliction, what it's actually aiming at. It isn't obvious to us. And thank God for his word that he tells us this isn't actually producing what it feels like it's producing. It's actually working in your favor for a different cause, a glorious cause. Let me give you a biblical illustration of this. The Apostle Paul, and what, I try to, what I'm trying to accomplish here in this illustration is that in the seen realm, what was opposition actually wasn't opposition. The Apostle Paul plants a church in Thessalonica, and he has great affection for the Thessalonians, the believers there. And he's away from them. He's separated from the believers at Thessalonica. And he wants to go and see them. And he writes this. He's worried about them. He's worried that other gospels are going to infiltrate their thinking. And he's worried that the, the opposition that's going to come across them is going to bear them down. He writes this in 1 Thessalonians two seventeen and 18. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. So there you have it. Satan hinders. Satan opposes. Satan causes adversity, affliction. And in the seen realm, I ask you, what did it look like? If you were in the Apostle Paul's shoes at this point, what does it feel like to you at this point? For whatever reason, he couldn't go and he says, Satan hindered me. What does it look like to you? It looks like opposition, right? And it would tempt you probably, I'm sure if you were in his shoes, would all be very tempted to lose heart and say, you know what, just forget this whole ministry thing anyway. I just want to run in such a way as to win the prize. I'm lucky if I don't tap out right now. That's what it looked like in the scene realm. Only Satan was hindering him and the gospel. But in the unseen, what was going on there? Now, hindsight is twenty twenty. We can look at it from the finished product, right? And uh, what happened? If you read on, he's forced to send Timothy. And Timothy is this young pastor who's getting pastoral training and ministry. He gets to go. That's a good thing. And second of all, even, even more importantly, I think, is the fact that Paul has to write the letter. If he would have went to them, he perhaps wouldn't have ever written the letter. And this letter becomes part of the New Testament canon upon which millions and millions and millions of Christians have read throughout the age. And the church has been built up through this letter because Satan opposed him. No, Satan wasn't opposing Paul. He was actually a key player on the kingdom side, propelling it forward thousand times more than Paul ever probably even realized. Think about how many people have benefited from this letter because Satan hindered him. There was no hindering going on here in the unseen realm. He was fighting for him. He was, he was used as a key instrument for the gospel's sake. That was, that's what Paul was striving for. And this is exciting to me. Jesus, he is 
our pioneer more than conqueror. I just want to bring this to the cross here. Through him, through Jesus Christ, we are more than conquerors through him. He's our chief. He's our pioneer in this cause. Now think about it with me here. Another illustration. What was the greatest moment that appeared to be Satan's victory and Jesus' defeat? What was the greatest moment in your mind right now as you think about that? Think about where it looked really obvious that Satan had won the day and where Jesus was snuffed out. What was that moment? Was it not the cross? Was there ever a time when it looked more like Satan had defeated him or Jesus was defeated? Was there ever a time that looked more like that in the seen realm? But in the unseen, Satan's very best attempt at Jesus proved only his own demise. And more than that, Jesus' eternal victory over sin and death forever and ever and ever. The point that Satan railed his hardest at Jesus proved to be the moment where he was blown to pieces. And it proved to be the moment where Jesus secured salvation for millions upon millions upon millions of people and established his kingdom decisively and his reign over sin and death. He is our chief more than conqueror and us who are in Jesus Christ cannot be touched, so to speak. So that is exciting gospel news to me. So I'd like to draw this illustration here as well. Verse 16 says, Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed Day by day. Now, go back to the fall with me. I think that there is a link between the consequence of sin being affliction. Is not the consequence of sin affliction? I mean, indirectly or directly, all affliction, all distress, all comes from the fall, does it not? Either directly or indirectly. And uh, one of the curses that was pronounced on Adam was, Cursed be the ground, and toil you should labor. And uh, there was death immediately, and then ultimately separation from God. So there was affliction and separation from God at the fall. And all things, now apart from Jesus Christ, let's pretend that never happened. At that moment on, all things were happening and there's affliction and hardship and trial in our lives. And those are meant ultimately to separate us further and further and further away from God. So every single affliction apart from Christ would only push us further away from God. It would only cause us all the more to despair until finally our outer self is wasting away, wasting away until its climactic point, which would be Death, for the wages of sin is death. That's what the consequence of sin was in the garden. Death. So the ultimate consequence of affliction or the fall would be death. 
which would symbolize your eternal separation from God forever and ever and ever and ever. That's what it would be. But not so with the Christian. Our inner self is being renewed day by day, which means that affliction, which was once designed to separate us and cause us only to despair, is actually sanctifying us and bringing us closer and closer and closer to God until that day when Jesus Christ will return or when we die. And death will not be total separation from God, but rather because of the cross of Jesus Christ, because we are righteous in him, we will be with God. We will be closer to God on the day of our death than we have ever been up until that point. And up until that point, it will be the most glorious day that we will ever experience. It will be more glorious after that. Yes, I believe that heaven is a place where glory and joy increase day upon day upon day. But up until that point where our death hits, that will be the closest we will ever have been with God up until that point, and it will mean glory for us when it should have meant eternal separation from God. That's not what it means for the Christian. It means glory for you. The worst consequence of the fall cannot be that. It has to be that you are closer to God. So praise God for the cross of Jesus Christ. We glory in that. So we look to the unseen and we don't lose heart. I have this simple equation here. Affliction plus the seen equals we lose heart. When you can only see what you can see with your naked eye in the situation, that's what it does, right? In the seen realm, it looks like you're running uphill against the wind, and that causes you to lose heart. And second, affliction plus the unseen means that we don't lose heart. When we look to the unseen, we know because we're Christians and through the Bible, we're told these afflictions aren't doing what they feel like they're doing. They're working for you, not against you. And therefore, when you know somebody's working for you, you don't lose heart. You have the strength, the gospel strength, to persevere and to press on and to run in such a way as to win the prize. Hallelujah. And uh, third here, the unknown purpose for affliction is equal to an added affliction, is it not? If you don't know why you're suffering, if you don't know why you're experiencing opposition and affliction, if you don't know that there is a design to it and a loving design at that, it is equal to another affliction on top of your affliction. If you have no idea that there's a loving end in this and a loving purpose for it, it will only cause you to despair and lose heart all the more. But if you know, on the contrary, that that affliction has a design from a loving creator, a loving father who has your best interest in mind, that is really exciting news. That's gospel news for us this morning. So the unknown purpose for affliction equals added affliction. The Bible allows us to see the unseen and makes it possible for Christians to know that opposition is actually not opposition. 
So in conclusion, think about what kind of people this should make us be or what we can do in response. And I have three things here. And there's probably a thousand. I don't have time for that, at least not in this sermon. Number one, keep an eternal perspective. If our afflictions are not held in eternal perspective, they will not seem light or momentary. They will seem bigger than they actually are. And they will cause us to lose heart. I have a story. (laughs) Every day after Thanksgiving, every year, the day after Thanksgiving, our family tradition, one of the many ways to go and select a tree. We buy real trees to put in our house for Christmas. And, uh, and, and over the years, I suppose, I'm growing more and more excited about this. But for me, I'm just kind of like, let's just get to the lot, get the tree, and get home. And, uh, and uh, I'm learning to have more fun with it, especially now that Lydia is enjoying the process too. Anyway, so we go, and I see a tree that looks really good, and the price is right, and I say, let's get that tree and let's go. Let's tie it up and, and move on. And, and Karen looks at it, and she says, that tree looks a little small. I'm not sure. And I say, Karen, it's fine. It's, you know, it's, it looks really good. It's nice and full, and, and it's proportionate, and, and, uh, and the price is right. Let's just grab it and let's go and set it up. And, uh, and she's like, oh, I don't know. It's a little small. And I tell her, think about it in our living room. It's going in our living room. Now the context that you're viewing it in is the sky. There's no limit. It looks small here. We get it home, sure enough, put it up, it's pretty full, and it was almost too big. That was, uh, those were her words. She's like, gosh, now that I look at that tree with one wall behind it, the other wall right next to it, and the ceiling closing it off, kind of looks almost too big. Now, what happened to that tree? Did it grow from the time that we took it from the lot to the time that we put it up in our living room? No, it didn't grow. The context changed. The living room that we were in was much smaller So it made the tree appear like it was really big. And in the context of the lot, it was under the stars. There was no, there was no, you know, closing in. There was no context to it. So it appeared smaller. And the purpose that I bring that story up is because it illustrates a good point. Not so that I could get up here and publicly say, I told you so. (laughs) Karen says to me after Charlie, talks about how he loves his wife so much, and she says, when you get a chance to preach, will you say that about me? (laughs) And here I am, I told you so. (laughs) Just happened that that was a particular time that favored me. I'm a spatial thinker. But I do love you, dear, very much. I'm sorry I couldn't work in a story that illustrates that more. So when we put our afflictions in the context of this world only, they appear bigger than they are, don't they? But when you put them in the context of all eternity, it's too small. So keep an eternal perspective. Number two, strive to know your eternal lot in Christ. And there are many passages here that we could bring up. And I listed off a couple of them. And I used to think two things. Number one, that the Bible didn't actually give us a whole lot of insight into what it will actually be like when Christ returns, what our eternal dwelling with him will be like. I used to think that it was kind of just like, just be faithful and it'll be good. And then second of all, I was always taught that our soul goes up to heaven only, not our bodies, and that it's not actually a physical place of our dwelling. And quite frankly, 
I struggled with that a little bit. I was like, well, you know, I don't know. Uh, I kind of want a body, and I kind of want an earth. I kind of want something physical. Floating around on a cloud and a spirit, didn't just, it just didn't seem that appealing to me. But lo and behold, the Bible actually does have a lot to say about what it will actually be like when Christ returns. Strive to know these things. Strive to know things that the Bible teaches us about it. We shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. The dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Perishable, our perishable body will put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Death will be swallowed up in victory. For the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem will come down from the sky and plant itself on this earth. The dwelling place of God will be with man where he will dwell with us and we will be his people and God himself will be with us as our God. He will wipe away every tear from our eye. Death will be no more, and neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. All things will be made new. Nothing unclean will ever enter into this city, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. No cowardly will enter. No faithless, no murderers, no sexually immoral, no sorcerers, no idolaters, no liars will be there. There will be no need for the sun because the glory of God will be their light. The river of the water of life, bright as crystal, will be flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. The tree of life will be planted there, and its twelve kinds of fruit each month will yield its fruit and its leaves for the healing of the nations. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and we will reign forever on his behalf, and the ransomed of the Lord will return to Zion and come there with singing, everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. These are just glimpses that the Bible gives us of what it will actually be like. This is what your affliction is working hard for you on your behalf to store up for you in heaven. Hallelujah. And number three, live for a great cause. Be a part of accomplishing God's will on earth as it is done in heaven. Take risks. Don't fear setbacks knowing that they can only work in your favor. Know that the worst affliction you could ever face will work all the harder in the favor of your eternal happiness. Don't lose heart in doing good. Men, do family devotions with your family, no matter how much your kids will throw their toys at you in opposition. Do it anyway. Don't lose heart in fighting sin. We have all the power that we need, the gospel power at our disposal. Fight sin. Don't lose heart. You are a Christian, and the blood of Christ has paid for it all. Amen and amen. Let me pray for us. Father, what a glory it is to think about your gospel. It is infinitely glorious for us, and it has so much more to offer us than we think it does. So I pray now that we would have our heads in the clouds 
and follow the command of Paul in first or in Colossians 3 to seek the things above. I pray, Father, that the gospel would be our strength day in and day out. And we would see that in it, in Christ crucified, we have all the power of heaven at our disposal to run in such a way as to win the prize and to not lose heart. So give us eyes to see the unseen now and help us to understand in all circumstances of our life, lives how you are working for us and not against us. So, Father, be with us now. Let this truth ring in our hearts and in our minds, and I pray that it would strengthen us now in Jesus' name. Amen.